The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go Beyond Reality. Welcome to the program. It's Beyond Reality, and I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thank you for being here tonight. We've got a special program. I always say that, and I always mean it. Um, and I guess what I've determined is that every night is special. Just like Barney used to say. Remember those Barney purple dinosaur? Everybody's special. And every night is special here on Beyond Reality. We're going to be talking with Eric Altman, a good friend, not just of mine, um, but of the paranormal community. He is a Bigfoot field researcher and a cryptozoologist. We're going to talk about the latest reports about Bigfoot sightings and, uh, and theories about what Bigfoot may or may not be and other cryptid sightings and reports and theories. That's all ahead with uh, Eric Altman, and we'll bring him in in just a few minutes. Um, I have uh, just a couple things I want to mention. First of all, please go to the YouTube channel. If you're listening as a, as a podcaster in any other form, uh, the YouTube channel is the hub of our online community. So go there, find the page, just search for JV Johnson. When you find it, subscribe. Our numbers are climbing steadily and rapidly. That community is getting bigger and bigger. We appreciate that. Thank you to everyone that's already subscribed and become a part of that family. Um, but if you haven't done that, please do that uh, at some point. Find uh, the channel JV Johnson, very simple, and uh, subscribe. Also find us on Facebook and give us a like there, JV Johnson, and also Beyond Reality Radio. Both pages are great to uh, like so that you can follow what we've got going on. We're always posting guest announcements and information on those pages. In addition to special things that the program is doing, whatever it happens to be, you'll find it there on Beyond Reality Radio on Facebook and also JV Johnson. So, you know, as I'm doing my show prep here, I I like to kind of scan the news and see what's happening. And I find an article that uh, was published a mere, what, six or so hours ago. And it's it, it, it reads, Stunning Biblical Discovery, Mysterious Temple Near Jerusalem Reveals Its Secrets. And apparently, an Iron Age temple complex has been discovered near Jerusalem, and it's shedding light uh, or new light on an ancient biblical city. The complex, which dates to the late 10th century and early 9th centuries BC, was discovered in 2012 near Tel Moza, near Ju- Jerusalem. It's identified as the biblical city of Moza in the kingdom of Judah. An archaeologist from Tel Aviv University and the Israeli um, and Antiquities Authority excavated the site last year and they um, have unearthed two buildings a temple and a structure beneath it. And it's kind of changing the way um, people are starting to understand uh, ancient Jerusalem and ancient uh, religious practices prior to uh, the birth of Christ and the, uh, the story of Christ. And who better to comment on this particular story than our good friend, Scotty Roberts. Scotty, I, I, the last minute, this thing was published just a few hours ago. It's obviously, yeah. it's obviously been something in the works for a while if they discovered it in 2012 and have been uh, you know, uncovering its secrets for several years now. Um, but it's, it's starting to tell a story, isn't it? It is. I, now, I've gotten uh, the magazine Biblical Archaeology Review for years, and while I didn't see this article till you just uh, pointed it out to me about 10 minutes ago, um, I know I had heard of this excavation in Moza that had been taking place. And Moza is about oh, uh, a mile from the heart of Jerusalem to the west. And it was, uh, you know, back in the day, you know, it was a little village. Um, and uh, they had this uh, little temple complex there. And, you know, I, I have... 
I just did a series a few months ago, well, several months ago now, back in the summer on King David, because he was one of my heroes of the Bible, and Jerusalem was supposed to be his city. And it's the lower, the old city of Jerusalem today when you go visit as a tourist. Mount Opal, which is the lower, kind of the south of the city, is the, uh, the city of David, the original city, which uh, belonged to the Jebusites. And David conquered it and took over and uh, made Jerusalem there. And there's a story in the Old Testament where David went to get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it to Jerusalem. And those who are not either Jewish or Christian would refer to David establishing the cult of Jehovah in Jerusalem. And he bought the threshing floor there uh, and set the temple up. And, and supposedly what you see today, when you see the Wailing Wall in the news, uh, the Mosque of Omar there on the western wall, I'm sorry, the eastern wall uh, facing the Mount of Olives, that that is supposed to be the old temple compound. And now there's new archaeology, however, that suggests that that whole compound right there might have been not Herod's temple, but the Roman Antonium Fortress, and that the temple was a bit smaller just to the south at the top of the hill of King David's city on Mount Opal, which now if you go out like the southern gates of uh, where the Mosque of Omar is today, you'll go down into the old city of Jerusalem. Uh, David's city, they call it, and uh, they believe that there was the the fortress was there, and perhaps the remnants of the temple. And now there's this temple out in Moza. Now it's interesting when David, the series I did. Uh, now, now, mind you, I don't want people to get the impression. Oh, I'm just going to take a shot at the Bible or the Bible stories or history any chance I get. I don't do that. I want to know what verifies them. That's why I started this stuff. I wanted to find out what it says. And uh, I did this whole series on David called uh, uh, David, the true, the, the, the real life story of an invented hero. Because I believe David, what you find in certain books of the Bible, was a big apologetic that was probably commissioned by David, as many of those Middle Eastern monarchs did in his day. And uh, because there are other parts of the Bible that chronicle David's reign that conflict with David's version, uh, done by his apologists. And there was one thing that David did. He went to get the Ark of the Covenant from, there's a little city called uh, Beth Shemesh. And um, there was, it was, I think that was the original name. And then it became known as uh, uh, Kiriath Jerim was the name of the city, and David went there, grabbed the ark by force. He was the king. This is where they had, if you remember, after the Exodus, they built the big tent that was the temple uh, that they carried around with them through the wilderness for 40 years before they settled in the land of Israel, now what became Israel. And they um, set this tent up at Beth Shemesh, and this is where they had the ark of the temple. Well, David went and got it and brought it to Jerusalem. Because he made Jerusalem his capital, and he wanted that temple to be under his control. So he made it the state cult, so to speak. And now there are there is thinking that there are some of these other locations, and there were locations all around what is now Judah, or Israel, which was uh, part Judah, and uh, where they had different centers of worship. Uh, 
and the centers of worship were very different than we might think now. Um, you remember through the whole Old Testament and the whole uh, uh, time of the royals, King David to Solomon to uh, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, all these kings that God was constantly telling them to tear down the high places and all these places of worship, these groves, what we think in like Celtic religion or Druidic religion in Ireland and Scotland and England, uh, the groves were on these high hills and they would tear them down. And in Israel, it was the same thing. And so there were all these centers of worship. Now, something that's very telling about Moza is they found these four terracotta figurines right. that were uh, embedded in, I guess it would be like the floor of the entryway to this temple. So if they find them in the floor, they were probably left there on purpose. Um, when I was in Egypt, and I was at uh, my friend John Ward's site in Egypt, the, the, uh, uh, the, sta- the stables of Tiberius at this old dynastic quarry, um, we found talismans left in just the uh, um, one-block-wall-high walls where all that were left of these rooms and these offices there's rubble, and we're going through, and we're finding uh, wads of braided hair and beads and things like this that were talismans that were thrown in the corner when people left. And I think that's what you might have with these uh, with these four terracotta figures. But remember, in Judaism, they believed and they took to the nth degree where God said in the Ten Commandments, "Thou shalt have no graven images." Um, not of birds, not of men, not of beasts, and so on. And so what they did in temple worship, the priestly caste, was there was nothing allowed that could look like anything on earth. There could be no idols. It was their way to viscerally, legalistically avoid making idols. They couldn't have any figurines. They couldn't have statuary. They couldn't have graven images. And this was actually when Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor associated with Jesus in Jerusalem, uh, when he had one of the big rebellions break out uh, in Jerusalem, it was because he brought shields with the images of Tiberius Caesar on them into the temple compound. And uh, the the Jews went nuts and uh, staged a big rebellion. And so to find these terracotta figures... This might not be Judaism we're talking about. This might be some of the older religions that existed there prior to. There was uh, the worship of Baal and uh, Baal uh, and Asherah. And uh, they were constantly telling the judges before the kings and then the kings to tear down the Asherah poles and uh, uh, the big standing stones and to take down the temples and to take down the graven images and so on. So I'm wondering if, uh, and I haven't read up enough on on what they found here at Moza, but uh, the fact that there's a temple there, and it dates to the 9th and 10th century, uh, King David... B.C., right? And B.C. Son, B.C. Say again? 9th and 10th BC, century yeah. B.C. Yeah, you're talking uh, B.C., so you're talking 3,000 years ago. And so uh, David, the king, would have lived roughly... In the uh, in the nine hundreds, the mid to late numbered nine hundreds, and his son Solomon. Uh, as a matter of fact, there is a a uh, a verse in the Old Testament, First Kings six verse one, says, 
that Solomon, on the day that Solomon, the son of David, um, uh, uh, dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, the building of the temple, the first temple, Temple One, in Jerusalem, it was the 480th year since the Exodus. Now, we know that Temple One and the reign of Solomon, uh, even though there's discrepancy about all this stuff, these guys really existed. It's whether they existed in the, the form that we read them, that he right. lived in the mid-900s B.C. And if you do the math, you end up from the starting of the temple all the way back to 1446 as being pretty much the date of the Exodus. And that's how you can get dates and figures and kings and so on and start lining up chronologies. And so when they came into the land, uh, what is, uh, some people call it Palestine, it was Canaan. Palestine didn't exist yet. Um, Palestine's a newer political um, uh, in the last couple of centuries. Uh, so they came into Canaan, and uh, this is, uh, um, eventually became Israel. And there were these high, high groves and places of worship and religion that existed there. They found, I believe, they found sphinxes in, uh, in some of the little clay figurines yeah. in uh, the Temple in Moza. And they're finding all over Israel now with the archaeology that's going on, they're finding all kinds of Egyptian-style figurines, uh, Egyptian pharaohs commemorated in little statuettes made out of clay that date back to this very same period. It's amazing, so, to, it's amazing to yeah. me, Scotty, that uh, so much of these secrets still remain buried. And are there to I be know. found. They're there to be found if we just keep looking for them. Um, we're going to have to cut this one this one short. But maybe we can pick this sure. up tomorrow night. You and I have a, have a scheduled program for tomorrow night. Booze, brews, and bros. We can chat about this a little bit more. How's that sound? Hey, that sounds fantastic. Looking forward to tomorrow night. Let everybody know where they can catch your show. Sure, you can go over to uh, my YouTube channel, Mister Scotty Roberts. Thanks and so m- uh, click in there, and you can see everything I do. Perfect. Thanks so much, Scotty, for your perspective on Thanks, this. Jimmy. We'll chat tomorrow night. Scotty Roberts, again, tomorrow night. Uh, catch us 11 o'clock Eastern for Booze, Brews, and Bros. It's an opportunity for us to chat about anything that you want to or that we want to, and we do it with a, uh, a nice cold beer with us, okay? That's how it's done on Friday nights. All right, we're going to go to break. When we come back, we're going to bring in our other guest for the night, Eric Altman. He's a Bigfoot field reacher and a cryptozoologist. We're going to be talking about the latest reports and explanations. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash joha. That's J-O-H-A-W. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Whenever I have Scotty Roberts on the program to talk about things like we just talked about, this temple that was discovered from the 10th century B.C., just outside of Jerusalem, where they did not expect to find it. And he starts naming cities as though I know what he's talking about. I I just don't know. I mean, that's why I have him on the program, because I don't know. I can't even pronounce those cities that he's talking about. I can say Moza. That one I can say. But he was uh, throwing out other names. That's why we have him do that. And I don't try. 
He does it very, very well. And again, you'll be able to catch both Scotty and I tomorrow night at 11 o'clock Eastern for Booze, Brews, and Bros as we let what little hair we have left down and have a casual, relaxing conversation, a little bit of fun along the way. We may play some games and do some other things. So that's what we'll be doing tomorrow night. Anyway, tonight we've got a really great program. I always enjoy this opportunity to bring my good friend Eric Altman back to the show. He, of course, is a Bigfoot field researcher and also a cryptozoologist. His contributions to the uh, study of Bigfoot are extensive. Um, I always enjoy running into him at uh, paranormal events across the country. Eric, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Great to have you back. I'm glad to be back, JV. It's good to talk to you again. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of some of these things, I think the last time you were on the program, Eric, you were about to go to your Pennsylvania Bigfoot camping adventure, if I'm not mistaken. It was about that time, wasn't it? Yeah, it was about uh, eight, eight or nine months ago, maybe. Yeah, Sounds before right. May. Sounds right. How did it all work out? How's everything? Uh, how's that going for you? Oh, it was fantastic. Uh, we had a great turnout. Uh, the weather cooperated. Had a very large crowd. I think we had over. Close to a thousand people over the weekend. Wow! And uh, we raised about three thousand dollars for our charities that we were uh, raising money for. So a really good event. That sounds very successful, and sounds like it's a lot of fun too. One of these days, I got to make it to one of these. Yeah, I hope you can come out because it is a lot of fun. It's a it's a learning uh, experience, and and like the uh, tagline says, it's the adventure of a lifetime. You have been uh, dedicated to this pursuit for quite some time now. How long has it been that you've been actually? in the hunt, if you will, and I hate using that word, but we use it, uh, for answers to these questions that we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, way too long. <laughs> <laughs> um, this, uh, this year will be my 23rd year in field investigating, um, actually going out and talking to eyewitnesses, looking for evidence, uh, being proactive as well as reactive to encounters and claims. Uh, I've been studying the phenomenon now for going on, gosh, 39 years. So uh, I've been involved uh, with the, the subject matter itself for a long time. Yeah, I, if I remember correctly, there were a couple of films, and I think we all can kind of trace our interest to some of these things back to some pop culture moments, whether it was a TV show or a, a film or a book or a story in the news, whatever it happens to be. One of you know something along the way provides uh, a catalyst for our curiosity. And there were a couple movies that were pretty instrumental for you, weren't there? Yeah. Um, uh, a lot of books and, and, and TV shows like Leonard Nimoy's In Search Of and, and things like that were inspira- inspiring for me to get involved. But two movies, as you're, you're correct, were uh, the catalyst to get me really deep into this search for Sasquatch. And, of course, those being Legend of Boggy Creek from 1972 and uh, The Creature from Black Lake, which uh, took place right across the state line in Caddo, Texas, um, filmed in Caddo, Texas in the uh, mid to late 90, 1970s. Uh, the Legend of Boggy Creek, as many people know, was what you might call a docudrama, where uh, it's based on true events that occurred in a little town called Falk, Arkansas, in southern Arkansas, in the uh, late 1960s and early 70s. And, of course, Creature from Black Lake was a fictional movie, but, again, based on some of the sightings and, and activity that occurred around Caddo Lake and in and, and, uh, the panhandle there in Texas. Since we brought it up... Um... I'm not sure that everybody is familiar with the story behind the film Legend of Boggy Creek. Tell us what that story is about. Well, it's a, like I said, it's a little town called Falk, Arkansas. And during the 60s, even in, back into the 40s and 50s, people were experiencing um, what we're 
familiar with known as Bigfoot, but this upright walking bipedal hair covered creature that was stalking farmlands and, and backwoods properties, people's uh, remote homes, and of course the, the bottoms and, and bogs of Boggy Creek and the Sulphur River bottoms. And uh, people were having these encounters. Sometimes they were very close encounters where the creature would actually come up to the house. Uh, there was a, a couple that was staying in a house um, just outside of Falk, Arkansas, that, that kind of uh, started the whole incident off. Um, a young man by the name of Bobby Ford was actually reportedly attacked by the creature, and uh, he went into a state of shock, and, of course, they rushed him to the Texarkana Hospital where he uh, later recovered from the shock. But um, there were people having a lot of uh, very close encounters with this creature, whether they were sightings, road crossings. Um, as I said, this creature attacked Bobby Ford, and it was coming, how that actually happened was the creature itself was coming around this farmhouse, and uh, there was two couples that rented this house. Um, the two husbands were working for a cattle ranch, and uh, they decided to save on expenses and share the home together, and they were residing there. And after, shortly after they moved in, this thing began creeping around and prowling around the house. It would come up on the porch. Um, it actually at one point put its arm through a, a, an open window and scared one of the women who was sitting on the couch. And, of course, the women told their husbands. They began to uh, explore the property. They saw this thing, and they actually took shots at it several times, chasing it off into the forest. And uh, Bobby Ford was one of the cousins of one of the wives who lived there, and he went out with the, the two gentlemen to try to track this thing down after they supposedly shot it. And as he was returning back to the house, it ambushed him, knocked him to the ground, and he had a tussle with this thing. And, of course, he went into a state of shock. They rushed him to a hospital. And, and that's pretty much the catalyst to what started all these encounters in, in, in Falk, Arkansas, along the Boggy Creek there. But it's a, it's a very well-known movie, a very famous movie. Um, it even made about $25 million at the box office, considering it was a very low-budget film. And, and incidentally, it's been the catalyst and inspiration for a lot of Bigfoot researchers to get involved with the study. You know, I know that I know that the story leading up to that film, um, you know, takes place the '50s, '60s, into the '70s. However, uh, you said that film was released in 1972, and I find it interesting. The Gimlin Patterson film was what in '68, '69, '67, '67. As we get into the 70s, we've got TV shows like you mentioned, In Search Of. We've got Chariot of the Gods from Eric Von Daniken yep. uh, making a big splash in, in the in the quote-unquote paranormal community. Then we've got things like uh, the movie The Exorcist, and we've got the Amityville Horror book coming. I mean, what was going on, do you think? And I know you were very, very young, but what was going on in the, in the 70s, let's say, that had so much of our public attention on these things i don't feel like we've got as much tension attention on these things as we did back then was there something unique happening i think it was the the fact that we were dealing with um a, a very changing time um, we've got the vietnam war um you know we're in the midst of the vietnam war starting up and occurring and people were looking for an escape from reality and i think these these types of films really provided that for a lot of folks and and you and I were, you know, we're, of course, we're familiar with the uh, 1950s and 60s B horror and science fiction right. movies. They were pretty popular. Absolutely. But as we moved into the 70s, these were cutting edge. Like you mentioned, the Amityville Horror and The Exorcist, especially. These films frightened people, and I think it drew a lot of people's um, 
attention and curiosity, and it kind of was an escape from reality, what was going on at the, the time back then. And, you're, you know, it's a really great point, because not only did we have uh, the Vietnam War winding up, but if anybody who remembers the political climate of the 70s, we, you know, there was also the, the air oil embargo, and there were gas yeah. lines, and there was super high inflation. I mean, there was some real tough times. So I guess people were looking for something to take their attention away. Yeah, kind of like an escapism from reality and everything that was going on. It was a very interesting time indeed, but you know, these movies really captivated the audiences, especially The Exorcist, and it blew people's minds to see that kind of horror and fiction right there up on the big screen. And I think The Exorcist, and along with the Amityville Horror, were the catalyst in its own right for a lot of people getting involved with the paranormal studies. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment as well. Do you um, think over the course of the 39 or so years that you've been paying attention to this with a good chunk of that actually researching it, do you think attitudes have changed among people as to whether or not they're willing to accept some of these ideas? Um, I've seen it come in waves, actually. Um, Back in the 70s, as you mentioned, I was was pretty young. But during the 70s, there was a huge boom of the Bigfoot craze. We had a lot of Bigfoot films, like I mentioned, Legend of Boggy Creek, Creature from Black Lake, Sasquatch, The Legend of Bigfoot. Uh, Robert W. Morgan put a movie out there. Monsters and Mysteries was released to the public. Um, so there, there was a lot of these films out there during the 1970s, and it was really popular, especially during the early 70s. And then it seemed in the 1980s it kind of died down a little bit, and um, the interest kind of waned. And then back into the mid-90s, late-90s, it really picked up again to where we are today, where it's huge in pop culture. I mean, you can't turn the TV on without seeing uh, a trailer for a Bigfoot movie coming out at the local theater or you know, Jack Link's uh, The Beef Jerky yeah. you know, snap into a Sasquatch. <laughs> so it's, it's so prevalent today, I think that it's just accepted by most people that, you know, oh, we see Bigfoot on TV, so it must be real. And I don't think many people are really understanding that there may be something to the phenomenon. They just see it as a pop culture reference. And you're so right about that. It's, and in the Jack Link's commercials are a prime example, but I've seen, I almost think there were some running shoe ads that had Bigfoot in them. Yeah. And there's been, I mean, there's, uh, you know, at least a half a dozen brands using Bigfoot as a spokesperson at this point. Oh, yeah. You see it everywhere. And it's, it's funny, we're, we're back in the late, late 90s when I got into field research, and prominently onto the internet, making you know, uh, making my presence known as far as investigating. Even back then, you were seeing commercials, but you weren't seeing them as frequently as you were. Then we had the Harry and the Hendersons back then, yeah. and that was about the biggest thing. But now, it's everywhere. There's documentary films. There's finding Bigfoot mountain monsters, ex- Bigfoot expedition on TV. It's like the norm to turn on TV and see something going on with Bigfoot, or even read in the news or on the internet. And I even saw, and I'm trying to remember, I'm racking my brain. I know I took a picture of it on, on my phone, but it would take me forever to find it. But I saw a commercial, I, I, I want to say it was either Taco Bell or Pizza Hut or something like that, where they were using alien, they are using uh, flying saucers is, is somehow in there. Or maybe it was Target, something like that. And I thought, what a strange thing. It must really indicate that these ideas, whether they're Bigfoot or aliens or ghosts, um, have a certain uh, captivating power with the American public. Oh, it certainly does. And the interest in the subjects, uh, whether it be paranormal, ufology, um, Bigfoot encrypteds, is it's skyrocketed. There's so many people that are involved in it, not only 
interested in it or have, like, uh, as I call it, an enthusiasm about it. Um, there are people actually getting out now and doing the field research. Um, I, I joke about it saying you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a Bigfoot researcher. <laughs> and that's, I'm being honest about that because there's so many Bigfoot groups now and researchers and podcasts and films and commercials. It's just, like I said, it's, it's a staple of pop culture these days. I'm trying to put myself, I have not really done any um, Bigfoot researching or, or gone on any, and again, I don't like this word, but I'm not sure, maybe you've got a better one, but I've not done any Bigfoot hunting. Um, and I'm trying to put myself in that in those circumstances. Do you think that from a mass uh, acceptance uh, perspective, that it's easier for somebody to go, say, out in the woods and, and do what you do, even if it's from a tour, like a tourism standpoint, versus more what I do, which is you know we go into a building that's supposed to be haunted and we sit in there for a couple hours and you know point and devices into the dark room. Um, it almost seems like you, what you're doing is is a much greater commitment. Um, I think they're both similar in, in most instances because I mean you guys put a lot of time and effort and commitment into doing what you do, uh, and it's very similar in the sense that. Um, a lot of times, and, and I'm sure you'll agree with this, a lot of times when you do research in a, in a building or a, a residence, nothing happens. Right. And that's the same thing with us in the forest. We go out there, we hear common wildlife. We hear the owls, the coyotes, the crickets, you know, the, that sort of thing. And nothing happens every time we go out, but it's the, the possibility that we'll get some good evidence. We'll capture a howl or a scream or maybe find some footprints or see some eye shine in the bushes that's higher than a deer or, you know, a, a typical animal that we're used to seeing. So um, I, I, give, I give a lot of kudos to, you, to the folks that do paranormal research because there's just as much commitment involved as what we do. As far as it easier, um, anybody can go out in the woods. I mean, it's free. Right. But with the paranormal research, I think you guys have to make arrangements to either rent a building or find a location to get permission to go in it. So there's a little more involved in that. But, yeah, anybody can do it. Um, and I encourage people, if they want to get involved with it, then, yeah, jump in. Tell us about some of the things you've experienced on your investigations or your uh, nights in the woods. Oh, my. There's, there's been so many strange things that have happened and occurred to me over the years. Uh, it's really hard to narrow just one down um, because some of them, I wouldn't say they're Bigfoot-related. They may be. I never saw the creature responsible for the noises we were hearing, but I've had some very interesting experiences, and I'll try to mention a few of them if I can. Um, there's been several occasions in different locations, whether it be in Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia, where we go out to an area that's pretty remote, and we don't tell anybody where we're going or when we're going. You know, we just go, we pick an area, um, we look at the history, see if there's been any sightings or experiences or activity in that area, and we say, let's go give it a shot. And we go out and sit in this area unannounced, and we have rocks thrown at us. And that, to me, is a, is a pretty interesting and intriguing experience because yeah. I know that deer and bear can't pick up rocks right. and throw them at us. Right. So it, it leads me to think, okay, there's only two possibilities here. One, there's another person in the woods doing it, or it could possibly be a Bigfoot throwing rocks at us. And I know from as long as I've been in this and talking with the researchers and eyewitnesses and even talking with primatologists, that's a typical primate behavior, throwing sticks and rocks at either predators or other animals to drive them away from 
you know, the territory. It's, it's an instinct. You know, we don't want you here, so we're going to throw rocks at you or sticks at you to get you to leave. And that's happened to me. Um, it's happened to me on, like I said, several occasions in different states. And uh, that's pretty compelling. Um, again, I can't say it was a Bigfoot, but... Uh, can I, before, before you go on, let me just ask you about the rocks being thrown at you. Have you been ever, ever been able to find the, the rocks that were thrown? Yes. Have you, yep. have you been able to test them to see if there's any... I know you're probably not going to get fingerprints or something, but even finger oils or anything like that on the rocks themselves? Now, we've never tested them for oils or anything to that effect. That's, that's probably a good idea to do so, but I'm not sure who he would try to get in touch with to yeah. have them test for oils. I don't on, even know if he can. Yeah, I don't know if he can. I'm, I'm not sure. I've watched a lot of forensic files, so I get these ideas, but I don't know if it's even <laughs> possible. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not a bad idea at all, actually. Um, perhaps we might be able to pull some fingerprints off of it or... Um, you know, maybe some oils from I'm not sure, but uh, we have found rocks. Uh, we've had rocks come very, very close to hitting us, bouncing off the ground a few feet in front of us, and we're able to see that rock, pick it up, and hold it and say, wow. Uh, how about, is- how about? and it's already interrupt, but these ideas are just coming to me. How about um, you ever have, a, like, a, a dog uh, try to pick up a scent from that? Well, that's, that's a great question, actually. Um, it, it seems from other researchers and their experiences and what eyewitnesses tell us, Dogs don't like to track these things. They're almost mm. deathly afraid uh, when these creatures are around. They tuck tail, right. they, they cower, they hide. And, and, and referencing back to Legend of Boggy Creek, there's a great scene in it where they take these hunting dogs, tracking dogs, out to try to track the creature, but the dogs refuse to go away from their owners, actually in some cases running back to the truck. So... There's been a lot of reports over the years of people trying to use even the most aggressive dogs to, to go out there and try to track these, these creatures down, and they were just simply refused to. It's just, uh, it'd be interesting to see if they, if, I mean, if they get, give you that reaction, that, that uh, reaction of fear, if they smell something on the rock itself. I don't know, something to try maybe. Yeah, it could be either the rock or they can actually, because we all know that animals, especially dogs, have a very keen sense of smell, much right. more powerful than us. Right. They may be smelling the creature itself, right. knowing that's true. that there's danger there and to stay away. That's true, too. So, um, that's, I mean, that would be, a, I, I don't know how you keep your cool in a situation like that. I mean, if I'm in the woods, I'm, I'm assuming we're talking about night most of the time here, mm-hmm. and there are projectiles coming at me. <laughs> I'm not sure I would stick around, but you, you, you tough it out, and uh, you, 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 know, you wait to see if anything else is going to happen. Well, I'll be honest with you, um, J.D., the first time this happened to me, um, this was back in the late 90s. Uh, I went on a, a ver- one of my very first night outings with a group of people up in upstate Pennsylvania near the New York state line. And we did have things thrown at us. And when you grow up as a kid reading about this in books and you read about other people's eyewitness encounters, you really don't expect it to happen to you. And the first time it did to me, I, I about had a nervous breakdown because mm. I was just like, oh, my God, this is real. This really happens. But as you become, not, I wouldn't say accustomed to it, but if it happens to you again, to me, it's almost like an adrenaline rush. I get so excited, and I'm like, I get giddy like a little kid, like, oh, my God, there's another rock coming at us. Yeah, there's something here. Something's going on, and it gets me really excited. But when it first, my first experience with it, I was scared to death. Tonight we're talking with Eric Altman about Bigfoot and other cryptids. Um, as we continue to, to discuss ideas, theories, sightings, all this, all of the above, 
Eric, I know that every time that you and I bump into each other at one of these paranormal events, you have a table full of stuff, uh, whether it's casts of uh, foot impressions or other types of uh, Bigfoot stuff. Uh, the, the foot impressions themselves, though, that's one of the most common, I would assume, pieces of evidence that uh, have has been collected. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on these foot impressions? Yeah, um, you're exactly right. It is the one of the more common or most common um, types of evidence in, in regards to the Bigfoot phenomenon. And um, there's so many diverse and, and different sizes, types, uh, widths, um, cast impressions that are out there, which definitely goes to show that if there were, if, and I'm not saying all of them are or all of them aren't, but if they were made by a uh, fake uh, cookie cutter, let's say cardboard cutout or a wooden cutout, something somebody could attach to a foot, these tracks that are made, you know, made into these casting impressions would all look the same. And if you saw some of the ones I had on display, they're they're quite different. Yeah. Um, whether they're different in length, um, width, um, uh, toe structure, toe splaying, um, they definitely, to me, show that there's something out there leaving these tracks. And uh, a very good friend of mine, and I'm sure you're well aware of, Dr. Jeff Meldrum, he's a professor at Idaho State University. He's a professor of anthropology, and uh, he studies primate um, foot anatomy and, and foot morphology, and he's examined over, he, I think he has well over 200 different types of casts collected from all around the world, and uh, he and I have discussed in length about these casts, and he's written several books, a book about it, Sasquatch Legend Meets Science, and he in that book discusses uh, some of these castings where he talks about toe splay and uh, how there's a, uh, um, an arch in, in the, uh, the foot, um, a mid-tarsal break showing flexibility in the foot, and you can see that in some of these casts. And, of course, some of these casts show dermal ridges, which, uh, as many people know, dermal ridges are what we have on our hands and feet. They're fingerprints. They're unique to each individual person, and uh, these casts are showing that. So um, I'm, I'm inclined to say that some of these casts that have been collected over the years and uh, shared and passed around uh, actually belong to an animal with, a foot that resembles very closely to a human foot, except much larger and much wider. Um, so there's something out there leaving these footprints that are being casted. Um, I can't definitely say a Bigfoot's doing it, but uh, according to all the descriptions from eyewitnesses and uh, Native American lore, it certainly does fall into the possibility that Bigfoot is leaving these tracks, and that's what we're finding in casting. What um, if you had to put the size of these impressions into terms of what we know for shoe sizes? Is that possible? Can you give us an idea? Um, some of the tracks have been compared to the size of um, basketball players. Um, Sha- Shaquille O'Neal, I believe, had a size twenty-three foot <laughs> uh, tennis shoe, and uh, these tracks have been compared in size to his foot. And it's, I won't, I won't um, argue that the point that there are humans out there that do have very large feet, that is true. 
but uh, to find them in some of these remote locations, it's very unlikely that Shaquille yeah. O'Neal is running around the mountains yeah. of Washington State. Yeah, given the fact that <laughs> Shaquille O'Neal is actually probably the only spoke, spokesperson more popular than Bigfoot at this point, because he's in every commercial I ever see, um, I doubt he's out uh, wasting his time doing that. And there's only a few people in the world that are the size of Shaquille O'Neal, so I don't think that's the answer. I was just asking for more of a comparative uh, purpose to see you know, how big these things are. Yeah, some of them are very large, 17 to 18 inches in length, uh, 7 to 8, maybe 9 inches in width at the ball of the, the foot, um, and in the heels about 5 or 6 inches. So they're, they're very large, hence the term Bigfoot. <laughs> um, and, and some of them, the impressions are very deep, where uh, they're found in, in, in soil that's not conducive to leave a deep footprint, where a person weighing, let's say an average person weighing 175, 200 pounds, would barely scratch the surface, and when these tracks are found, they're two to three inches deep in the ground. So something with um, a lot of weight would have to, to leave, a, you know, a track that deep. And it's very interesting to find. You know, like most people, let's say for argument's sake, two hundred to two fifty in that 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 weight range, walked on the same soil, wouldn't leave a footprint that deep. Yeah. So it's very compelling that something is out there leaving these very large tracks that are, are very deep, and, and it, to this point, we can't prove Bigfoot's doing it, but something is. We um, obviously can look at the impressions as, uh, as physical evidence. What other physical evidence have you been able to either witness or gather? Well, I wouldn't call it physical evidence per se, but the audio recordings that people collect of hearing sounds that they can't, they can't match with common wildlife or known wildlife, the howls and screams, I would say, would be uh, constituted as a form of evidence. Um, of course, the hair samples that people have collected over the years and, and scat samples, um, some of them have come back as not being able to be matched to any known mammal or, or animal um, that's in the database for animals that are, are native to that particular area. Um, there was, um, the, the name escapes me at the moment, I apologize, there was a uh, primate anatomist uh, or primate um, I can't think of his name, but he worked at the Oregon Primate Institute, and Henry Fehrenbach was his name. And um, Dr. Fehrenbach had several hairs he collected that he thought were the gold standard for Sasquatch hair. They didn't match any known animal, and they were actually missing the medulla, the, uh, the, the, hair, the inside molecule in the hair that is missing from hair. Most animals have a medulla where he felt that Sasquatch hair doesn't have the medulla inside the hair when he looked at it through an electron microscope. Is the, uh, the, hair, the hair samples that have been collected, um, the ones that can't be identified or can't be matched, I guess, is it a standard uh, DNA strand that we would, we would see in other forms of what we would consider to be normal uh, DNA samples, uh, or is it, is it configured somewhat differently? Um, well, the, the, some of the samples that have been collected um, <clears throat> have not been able to be matched with any known animal, and they're mm-hmm. simply classified as that because there's nothing on record in our files. Now, if we had um, a, a type specimen, we can match. The, those, we had a type specimen for Bigfoot was known as Bigfoot. Then we can match those hairs and say, yeah, there, there you go. That's, that's what it is. But most of them have been classified as, as un, unknown or unrecognizable, undocumentable. And, um, so these weren't DNA comparisons. These were these are just physical property comparisons, right? Physical property gotcha. comparisons. Okay. Um, I, I do believe there's been some DNA studies done over the years. 
Um, and there's been several different people that have done DNA studies um, in the last probably 10 or 15 years that um, the samples have come back that have actually matched known animals, um, whether they be deer, coyote, bear, possum, skunk, you know, those type of animals. They come yeah. back as matched animals. But there are a, a certain few that have been looked at over the years that just don't match anything. And unfortunately, like I said, until we have a type specimen, we can't really say what they are. Recently, there was a study done of Loch Ness where they took water samples and just tested all of the DNA they found within those water samples. Right. And when you consider the fact that you know anything that is um, you know living nearby the lake is going to uh, leave traces of itself through the digestive process, those traces will be washed into the water, and so theoretically you could find the DNA of every creature that might be within a certain radius of that water supply. Um, has anything like that ever been done in an attempt to identify Bigfoot DNA? Actually, yes. Uh, recently, they're, they're doing the same thing with um, streams and creeks and lakes where they're taking water samples to see what kind of creatures are coming to the water to drink. And uh, interestingly enough, um, they've come back with our, the typical wildlife, you know, the deer, the bear, that sort of thing. But there have been many occasions where they found DNA that closely matches to human DNA or is human DNA, which sparks the argument with a lot of researchers that perhaps Bigfoot is closely related to humans. A lot of researchers think Bigfoot is a missing link or, you know, undiscovered primate, but there's a lot of researchers that also think that it's very, very close to the human genus. And if that's the case, if that is Bigfoot drinking that and he has DNA very close to humans, that's probably what it would be recognized as. So that, that has happened in several cases, um, several studies in the last few years where they're starting to use this environmental DNA um, pulled from creeks and lakes and ponds where they can identify it and say, yeah, there's coyote drinking from here. You know, of course, we have the typical fish or you know, the, the uh, animals that live in the, the water source, but there's also these animals drinking from it. And it's surprisingly, some of these creeks and lakes that are way out in the middle of nowhere, pretty remote, are pulling back and showing that there's human DNA coming up in the water samples. So that leads me to the next question then, and uh, there's there's about $100 million questions in this conversation, but one of them is, do you think that the Bigfoot species, whatever it happens to be, is a branch of the human evolutionary tree, or is it something completely separate? Well, it, that is a great question, and it is a $100 million question. I, I wish I had an answer for you, but unfortunately at this point we just don't know. We don't have enough information to say what it is and what it isn't until we have a type specimen either on a slab or in a, in a cage to study. Um, there's so many different theories about what it is. Of course, I mentioned Dr. Meldrum and several scientists that are actively looking into this phenomenon believe it might be related to the Gigantopithecus, uh, the largest primate known to exist that existed in eastern China. Um, so they think maybe that crossed into Russia, across the Russian um, land bridge into British Columbia, Canada, and then down and migrated down into the United States. There's those who think that. There are those who think that it is very closely related to human, as I mentioned, that it may be not far off the branch from our evolution. And, and again, some people think it's a missing link where you know, it's that, that gap between primate and human, and that's where it falls in. There's so many different theories and ideas of what Bigfoot may be, and 
it, it, at this point, it's anybody's guess until we have a specimen. But what's your opinion? I want to get. I want to try to get what you. I mean, you've looked at this probably more than anybody else, or right up there. And you must well, have some opinions, Eric. <laughs> you're going to find this interesting, but I, I'm really not sure what it is at this point. Um, from studying all the material, and the longer I'm in this, the rabbit hole gets deeper and weirder as I go along. Um, from talking to so many people over the years, investigating cases, there's just so many different offshoots from the the subject matter that it can take you anywhere and at this point i'm not sure what exactly we're dealing with because let's be honest if this was truly an animal even though if it was elusive and its numbers were just viable to keep a breeding population alive by now wouldn't you think we'd have a specimen right whether live or dead so you have to you have to even address that question, okay, if we don't have a specimen live or dead, then what are we dealing with here? And that gets into a whole Pandora's box of paranormal possibilities, an alien connection, an interdimensional connection, and there are researchers who are actively exploring those avenues to see if there is some kind of connection there. Yeah, and we'll get into some more of those theories as our our conversation continues. Um, But before we do that, um, you know, you, you mentioned if there was that population there, we would see some evidence. And one of the things that people always bring up is, well, why haven't we found a corpse? You know, these things, if they live, they have to die. And if they die, they have to, you know, at some point you'd think someone would stumble upon a corpse. And then the counter to that is often, well, when's the last time you were walking through the woods and you saw a bear corpse lying there? You just don't yeah. see them. Um, what are your thoughts on the corpse discussion? Well, that, that you're exactly right. Um, I'm a hunter and a fisherman, outdoorsman, you know, I do that for my hobbies as well. And I've spent a lot of time in the forest doing those as well as doing the Bigfoot research. And I found deer corpses um, that were either killed by a hunter or um, died recently, but most of them are decayed or rotted to the point where you see some scant bones, some flesh maybe. Um, I've never seen a bear carcass um, that wasn't, you know, I saw a bear car because it was moved off the road by the game commission because it was struck by a car, but I've never seen one that died of natural causes. Right. And I know from just my personal experience that when an animal dies in the forest, usually within seven to ten days, that animal's almost completely gone. There's very, very little left, if anything, right. of that animal. And then, of course, you get into the whole theory that people, uh, some people have that these things have a social structure like we do, and they have uh, they have a burial ground where they take the animals to and, and bury them once they're they're in the animal the creature dies. There's that that theory that that's been out there for a while. And there's also a theory that they have possibly have like an elephant graveyard where they go off deep into the mountains where no one else goes, so they can die in peace and and not have to worry about any kind of person coming and interrupting you know their passing on. So. There's a variety of different theories thrown out there why we don't find a body, and um, any one of them could be viable. You know, you and I have crossed paths at a lot of shows. Um, you, you got a lot coming up, and what I think uh, spring things start to get busy again, don't they? Yeah, I, I've got. Um, it's not even February, and I've got eight eight uh, events booked for this year where I'll be lecturing. And, oh wow! And uh, yeah, I'll be at Phenomenology where you and I have been at both together. Um, that's coming up in March. Um, I'm hoping Bob will have me back to Penhurst this year for the Penhurst Paracon. That was fun two years ago when you and I were there. 
I was there last year. It, it was so hot. Were you there last year? I don't remember. I was there the year before yeah. that, yeah. and um, it was hot on the Saturday. It was uh, excruciatingly hot, and then <laughs> Sunday was real cool because it had rained. Yeah, it this really cooled it off. This past year, it was super hot the whole time. I don't even know if you remember that heat wave we had in yeah. August. Oh boy, that was brutal. And then we were in these tents, and and Bob said, uh, you know, he's going to try to alter the dates. I don't know if they've picked dates this year or not. You may know, but um, he was going to try to do it in a, in a point where there wasn't such risk of high heat because that was bad. It, it, it was bad two years ago for that Saturday. I remember that. Yep, and he was yep. talking about getting some air conditioning and yep. fans and, and whatnot to put out there in the tent. It was a great event, a huge oh, sure. turnout. Yeah, but, uh, yeah I, I have a lot of events that I'm doing uh, this spring and into the summer and fall and just uh, around the, the East Coast um, and even up into Michigan. I'll be speaking this year at a couple different events. So it's always good to get back out on the road and talk with people about cryptids and Bigfoot and, and share what I know. Yeah, I have to say I'm a little disappointed I won't be able to attend Phenomenology this year. I'm actually headed to Holland. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, my son graduated from grad school over there, and, and I'm going over um, to tour, uh, travel around a little bit with him and then move him back to the United States. So it's more that I'm, I'm kind of a pack animal more than anything else. Well, congratulations <laughs> to him, and, and I hope he has some great success in the future. Thank you very much. So let's start talking about some of these ideas, because you threw a few of them at us, um, you know, this interdimensional idea, this alien connection. Let's start, let's start with the inter- interdimensional thought. Um, first of all, I want to know what, you know, how much credence you put into this type of idea. But secondly, what is the theory that, that Bigfoot is a creature from another dimension just pops in and out? Well, yeah, let's open this Pandora box because it's it's very controversial. And unfortunately, at this point, there's not a lot of evidence other than eyewitness testimony to back this up. Yeah, um, yeah the interdimensional theory that's being tossed around by some researchers and it's being argued against by some researchers, it's a very controversial subject, is the fact and matter that, that this creature is able to manipulate some kind of portal or doorway, or the ability to leave its dimension, enter ours, and then return to its dimension while retaining its physical uh, capabilities, its, its structure, because it's leaving footprints here in our plane, in our world, and it's leaving some scant hair and, and droppings and that sort of thing. Um, so it has to have some physical ability to it or physical makeup of it. But there are researchers who feel that it has the ability to whether they call it shift from um, one dimension to another or phase in and out or whatever they're calling it, that's what they're talking about. And one interesting um, example I'll share with you, and I'm sure you're, you're probably familiar with this, the Skinwalker Ranch out in Utah, um, they had a group of physicists that were uh, and um, scientists that were brought in by Robert Bigelow to monitor the ranch because the ranch had a lot of UFO, paranormal, cryptid activity going on, uh, an abundance of it. And one of the, uh, the physicists there actually watched a portal open up about four feet off the ground, a wormhole, if you will, and saw a hair-covered bipedal creature climb out of this portal, step down onto the ground, and then run off into the darkness. And uh, he, he went on record of saying that that's what we saw. Hmm. And uh, Colm Kelleher, I believe is his name, he worked for the NIDS, the National Institute of Discovery Science that was headed up by Robert Bigelow. He talked about that in, in the documentary and the book, The Hunt for the Skinwalker. How recent was that sighting? 
That happened back in, I want to say, early 2000s, maybe late 90s. Would you say that was prior to this uh, theory being commonly discussed? Well, it, it was being tossed around and discussed um, simply because there were reports that were being shared in the Bigfoot community of tracks that were being discovered that would walk off into a field, mm-hmm. especially in snow, where they would just abruptly end and there would be nowhere for them to go. Um, they, they, people were talking about that. People were talking about Bigfoot that would just, it would be there one second and then all of a sudden it was gone. Um, it should be still in the, our, our plane of uh, sight, right. our, our line of sight, and it's not there anymore. So it, the topic was being discussed, but it was being discussed in almost a very hush-hush tone because nobody really knew what to make of it. But now more and more researchers are sharing this openly, and they're discussing it and writing books about it. Uh, a, a colleague of mine by the name of Dr. Paul Johnson, he's a chemistry professor at Duquesne University, wrote a book recently that was released by Rosemary Guiley. Um, that was called The Pennsylvania Bigfoot Phenomenon. And in this book, he talks about the possibility of Bigfoot being able to manipulate the quantum realm, um, where it's known that particles are able to... Um, uh, be in one state and then disappear and reappear in another state, in the same state, in a different location. And he talks about the possibility that these Bigfoot are able to do that. And the ideas have been thrown around and tossed around for some time, and more and more researchers are starting to look at this possibility. And uh, I've actually had eyewitness cases um, that I've investigated with other researchers in the last five, ten years where people have told me, point blank, this thing was there, and it just literally dematerialized. I watched it walk across the road, and it was solid form, and then I watched it kind of just disappear, not in, I'm talking behind a tree or in bushes or, you know, it just disappeared in darkness. It was there. They could see it in their headlights or they could see it in the daytime, and then it just dematerialized. It wasn't there. So there's something going on people are seeing, and unfortunately, like I said, we don't have evidence to support this interdimensional theory, but there are people experiencing something. And in my opinion, as crazy as it sounds, as far-fetched as it may be, we, as researchers, we have to keep an open mind and explore all possibilities, because at this point, we don't have answers to this phenomenon. So those researchers who refuse to look at it, I, I think are doing the subject matter disjustice, because they're not looking at those cases, although they might be minute or small in the whole scheme of things, they're not looking at those cases and seeing if there's a possibility to it. You know, one of the difficult parts of this interdimensional theory is the fact that we don't even know what these other dimensions are, if they exist. So, you know, you're asking people to, um, you know, take two leaps of faith here. One is that that's what Bigfoot is. The other is that there are actually these other dimensions. However, having said that, it almost seems like science is getting closer and closer to proving from what I'm reading, that there is a strong case for these discussions of other dimensions. Yeah, and um, I believe it was brought up in the last few years that they, they've come to the conclusion that there are other dimensions out there, I believe 12 other dimensions that exist along with ours. And I don't know the science behind it. I don't know um, how they came to this conclusion yeah. or if it's just a theory but it's been discussed, and if that's the case, um, maybe there is some relevance to the possibility that Bigfoot is inter- interdimensional. Now, the only question there lies 
is if it is interdimensional, how is it getting from one dimension to our dimension and then returning? Is, is it something that's going on that we as human beings just aren't able to measure that or to study it with the scientific tools that we have? Um, can we replicate it in a lab? Um, can we do the, the hypothesis testing on it? At this point, we can't because we don't understand exactly what it is. But as you mentioned, they're getting closer to, I think, actually saying, yes, there are dimensions out there if they haven't already. Let's talk about the alien connection. Um, I mean, there's another explanation that would fit in well with the patterns that we've seen and the and the uh, difficulty we've had with making identifications. Um, if these things are alien in nature, they could be popping in and out from spacecraft or something. And, and as strange as this may sound, there are eyewitnesses who have reported seeing UFOs and Bigfoot creatures in the same location, whether they be there at the same time or one before the other within hours or days. Uh, There's a fascinating case that took place here in southwestern Pennsylvania in Fayette County in 1973, October of 1973, where a large glowing sphere landed on uh, a hillside of a farm and these men went to investigate, and they saw the sphere sitting there in the hillside. And as they went to go investigate the sphere, they saw two bipedal creatures approach them along a fence line. And uh, they shot at these creatures, and the creatures were treated out into, back into the darkness. And when they shot at the creatures, the, the sphere of light disappeared, and the creatures were gone, and the sphere was gone. But there were multiple eyewitnesses who had watched this light come down out of the sky and land and saw the creatures walking near this craft. And they had state police involved in the investigation. There were several prominent UFO researchers. Stan Gordon from Pennsylvania was involved in that case. And that's just one of cases that I know of that that have involved a UFO being seen either at the same location at the same time or, like I said, within hours or days of each other happening in the same area. Could, uh, is, is there a strong case to be made f- that uh, you know, a Bigfoot creature could be just on par with what we know as the greys or the reptilians or you know, these other what many people say are alien races that have been visiting us for many years? It's a possibility. Um, I've, unfortunately, like with the interdimensional thing, I, I don't, there's no real evidence to support that other than eyewitness testimony yeah. sharing these reports with us. And uh, I don't know of any cases where people have seen Bigfoot cra- uh, powering a craft or flying a craft. Right. But uh, I know of a few cases um, that have been shared with me in historical cases um, from back in the uh, 1980s where people have claimed they've seen a Bigfoot walk off a craft. They've actually watched it walk down the ramp of a, a saucer that had landed. And uh, I don't know if that I wasn't able to talk to that person myself to see if they were fabricating it or in the right state of mind, so I can only go by what the historical report says. But there are cases like that out there where people have claimed that they're seeing these Bigfoot around these crafts, like I mentioned, whether it be the same time, same location, or just you know apart from each other um, at the same location. So, I don't. I can't say that there's a tie where these animals are, could be creatures could be related as, as the greys are, or these supposed lizard creatures are. I just don't know. But um, we do get the reports, and here in Pennsylvania, 1973, there were quite a number of reports that uh, some that tied or, or somehow had a connection with the UFOs 
and Bigfoot uh, being seen uh, relatively in close proximity or right. a, a close time. Right. Um, yeah, I've heard a lot of that as well. What about the idea that, because you mentioned, you know, there haven't been any reports of people seeing a Bigfoot-type creature powering a craft or piloting a craft or whatever it happens to be. Could it be that the Bigfoot creatures are maybe uh, a workhorse for the greys or something along those lines? It's actually been discussed, um, as a matter of fact, where um, there's one theory out there, as crazy as it sounds, that, that Earth is a prison planet for the Bigfoot creatures that were sent here by aliens. This is, you know, their they're prison. They're, they're stuck here. And there are people who say that the, the aliens send the Bigfoot here to do their bidding as scouts or, um, you know, as you mentioned, workhorses, poss- the possibility. Of, I, I can't say that, that that's legitimate or it, it actually happens, but that idea has been tossed around and, and theorized by some researchers. And, and I don't know if it has any validity to it or not, but it certainly makes for an interesting conversation. All right, let's, uh, let's talk about another theory. How about shape-shifting? Yeah, the uh, the famous shapeshifters. Um, that, that's another good possibility as well. Um, although uh, scientifically, I don't think it's feasible. I, I don't know if the Bigfoot creatures can change from a Bigfoot into uh, a coyote or another animal or, or uh, even to a spirit. I, I just don't have evidence to back that up or support it. Yeah. But there are researchers who discuss that. The Bigfoot does have the ability to shapeshift, much like you know the Native Americans talk about shapeshifting. Um, they're they're shaman or um, the medicine people have that ability to shapeshift. And uh, usually, when they talk about shape shapeshifting in the Native lore, it's referring to an evil spirit or um, a human that's be- become possessed by an evil spirit that has that ability. But there are researchers out there that have thrown that idea out that Bigfoot is a shapeshifter and has the ability to change its physical appearance from that of a upright walking creature to something common like a coyote or wolf or even a, a bear, for that matter. But then again, you'd see tracks that you yeah. know, may have ended in uh, from a humanoid-type footprint to that of a coyote or whatever it happens to be, right. and, and that's not really happening. No. Um, one other question about the Bigfoot uh, discussion, then I want to uh, change the conversation a little bit. But, you know, we started the, our discussion talking about movies like Legend of Bog- Boggy Creek and other films like that. Do we have the same type of um, what we would consider to be, uh, I'm not even sure how to put this, but legend-worthy sightings going on? I mean, the, the Legend of Boggy Creek was a series of sightings over the course of 20-some years, maybe longer that um, you know culminated in somebody writing a story and making a film out of it. Are that those types of uh, uh, contact and sightings still occurring, or are they much either less frequent or much more limited? Yeah, those those historical types of sightings still occur, and they they occur. They seem to occur in pockets around the United States. Um, I, I, some of them have actually been made into documentary films, like in Whitehall, New York, for example the famous Bear Road sighting that took yeah. place in the 70s with the police officers involved. There's still sightings that go on in Whitehall, New York. People still report uh, roadside crossings and seeing the creature up there in the Adirondacks. Uh, so that, that happens. And, and even areas like Texas, I mentioned about the, the creature from Black Lake, there are still sightings going on in the big thicket of Texas where people are still having uh, sightings and encounters down there. So there are pockets throughout the United States where... It, historically, there have been a lot of activity, like uh, with Arkansas, 
Falk, Arkansas, that was made into a movie, and and there's still sightings going on in Falk, Arkansas. Incidentally, they still they still occur, but there are places like that throughout the United States that seem to have, I wouldn't call them a hot spot per se, but they seem to be pockets of sightings that have historically happened and continue to happen to this day. That I, in my opinion, I think would be worthy about writing books about or, or creating films about. What about other cryptids? We spent, uh, you know, the first part of this discussion. We don't have a lot of time left, but there's other stuff going on as well, and I know you're interested in that too. So, what other creatures have you been following? Well, I've been um, for a while now, and this this subject has kind of um, gained a lot of popularity. Um, this happened in the early 1990s to mid 1990s up in Michigan and in Wisconsin where people were seeing this upright walking canid, or as they call him, dogman, or even werewolf. Some people have put the label of werewolf on this creature. And um, they were specific to these two areas up in northern Michigan and in in uh, southeastern Wisconsin. And um, I've been out to Bray Road. I've been out to that farmlands out there. A good friend of mine, Jay Bachochin, has done some research out there. And, of course, we all know Linda Godfrey. She's written several books on yeah. the, the Beast of Bray Road. And that captivates me, that, that there's some kind of creature out there that resembles very closely to a canine or a uh, coyote or wolf-like creature that has the ability to get up on two legs and walk like um, a, a, a biped. And we we all know animals, specifically dogs, that are, are um, built and made to remain as a quadruped, are upright walking like that. And that fascinates me how they're able, these creatures are able to do that. And what's even more fascinating is it started in those two regions, um, as I mentioned, Michigan and Wisconsin, and now it seems to be becoming uh, a nationwide phenomenon where these dogmen sightings and encounters are popping up everywhere. Um, it's almost become as popular as Bigfoot sightings are. Uh, people are reporting having these encounters with these very aggressive dog-like creatures, whether they be, they, they've been described, as I mentioned, either upright walking dogs or this cross between um, a wolf and a person, like a werewolf type of creature, very muscular, very aggressive. Um, and, and we're getting more and more reports of these things encountering you know people and people encountering them, and I find that fascinating because it, we all know this thing shouldn't exist. If it's a wolf or a dog or a coyote or even a hybrid, they shouldn't be able to stand up on two legs and walk and run on two legs like these people are reporting. But uh, apparently, it's happening, and, and people are having more and more experiences with them. And I've uh, had a few people on the program talking about the dogman phenomena and. Everyone that I've spoken to about this has added to their story that these sightings come with a real sense of foreboding. Have you heard that as well? Yeah. Uh, I've talked to some eyewitnesses that uh, have have had pretty close encounters with these things, like I'm talking within feet. And uh, they before they had the encounter, they just got this overwhelming feeling of just like, oh, my God, there's something here that shouldn't be here. It's evil. And then they have their encounter, and of course they're in a state of shock and panic by then. And thankfully, as far as I'm aware of, there haven't been any attacks or you know these creatures known to be aggressive where they attack people. Usually, it's growling, snarling, standing its ground, not running off like a bigfoot is said to do. This thing is is actually aggressive where it's is not backing down. 
and the people I've talked to have said, yeah, these things are, have this overwhelming feeling of foreboding or evil associated with them. Do, are the reports that you've heard uh, indicate that these things act like a canine in the sense that they're pack animals? I haven't heard, uh, per se, of, of groups of these, these uh, dogmen, if you will, being seen in packs. Usually when there's a sighting that occurs, it's one seen by the eyewitness. Now, there was a case, um, and I believe it was in Maine, where a family was staying at their home, and the house was approached by a pack of these supposed dogmen creatures. But that's the only one that I'm aware of that took place. And that was, I think it was about maybe 10 or 15 years ago up in, I believe it was Maine or, or Vermont area where that happened. But the majority of reports that I'm hearing about or the people I'm talking to are having an encounter with one individual rather than a pack of them. And where do you think the foreboding part comes from? I mean, that would indicate, and, and you use the word evil, and I've heard that word used elsewhere as well in relationship to these creatures. That would indicate some type of spiritual connection or something. Yeah, I, I would think that too. Um, and I think the reason people are, are feeling that sense of evil or, or foreboding is because they're seeing something that shouldn't be doing what it's doing. And, and it looks ominous, and it's snarling and growling at them, and it just has this huge mass of presence in front of them. And it, to them, it's a monster. And I, I think that's where a lot of the association of the foreboding and evil may come from, is just that this thing is right there in front of them, and it looks like it could rip their head off and tear them apart with its claws. I think that's where that comes from. The, the, there may be some kind of spiritual association with it that I'm not aware of, but I think that's where, my opinion, where the, uh, the, the whole sense of foreboding and, and evil, the, the evil aura comes from is just that, oh, my God, it's right there in front of me. It's aggressive. It's growling. It's snarling. This thing's going to rip my chest open. It's going to bite my head off. And they, they get that overwhelming sense of fear from it. So you're thinking it's more of a physical reaction to what you're seeing versus some type of spiritual or psychological intrusion. That's my impression of it. I, I, I think that's what people are they're seeing it, and they're, they're taking that whole physical appearance in, and it's, it's just shocking to them, and, and that's where they're getting, oh, my God, I'm going to die, <laughs> you know, rather than when they see a Bigfoot, Bigfoot's running away, and it just has that, oh, my gosh, well, I just saw a Bigfoot, and it's more of a, kind of surprised rather than a dread feeling. I think the the whole impression of the dogman phenomenon is more evil and foreboding because of its appearance. Changing the subject again, there have been periodic reports, and I see these flash up through social media. You know, every couple months one of these pops up where some kind of odd sea creature washes up on a beach that can't be identified. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming that most of them ultimately either get identified or they're determined to be hoaxes. Uh, any of those stories that we should be paying attention to? Um, I find those stories intriguing because there's so much of the sea that we haven't explored yet, and the sea is so deep and so vast. We, there's a lot of things down there I'm sure we don't know what's down there. Right. And some of these animals wash up on shore may not be something that we have identified or, or you know, found to be a, an animal that we're familiar with. And, and, of course, when they wash up on shore, you're dealing with an animal that's probably been eaten by other yeah. um, animals in, the, in the, the sea, other sharks, other fish, and then, of course, drying out on the sun, 
and it's decomposing and seeing something like that that could be something as common as a whale or a dolphin or even a, a turtle that looks decayed and, and just chewed on is going to look like a monster. Some of them I find fascinating because just the way they look on the, the, the ocean or the, the beach coming up from the ocean. And then when you get out, you get the, um, the biologist out there or the oceanographer out there or, or someone that's, that's uh, studied aquatic, aquatic wildlife you know, and they get out there and look at it and they can't identify it. That to me is fascinating. So based on what you just said, I'm assuming that you've seen some of these that have actually made you think, okay, this might be something that we haven't identified yet. Yeah, I've seen some stories over the years where something's washed up on the shore that looks like a, a blob, and you, you don't see any flippers on it or fins or anything that would you know, make you think, okay, well, that's a shark or a whale or a dolphin, and, and it's just a blob of something. And you, you read the story, and in the story they say, well, it hasn't been uh, positively identified, and they're looking into you know, getting tissue samples and trying to you know, determine what it is. And, and I just sit there and look at the picture going, man, what is that? Uh, I've never seen anything like it. And when it had scientists baffled, that, that really is intriguing to me. Unfortunately, though, most of these animals are, in the end, positively identified as a, a very rare species of whale or shark or fish that's washed up on the shore that, that can be identified. But the initial story itself is fascinating when you first look at it and you see that picture. You just don't know what it is. Yeah, well, going back to the, the Bigfoot thing here just for a minute, um, was 2019 a, a, a big year for sightings, average year, lower than average, and is the trend going up or down? Um, it really hasn't died off. Uh, we still get reports. I still get reports. Um, a lot of my colleagues and friends that I'm, I'm friends with in the field still get the reports. You see fluctuations all the time. Some years it goes up, some years it goes down. And I don't necessarily equate that to the creatures not being around. Uh, I just equate that to people either not reporting them or people just not being out in the woods as much as uh, the year before. Uh, there's a lot of factors that, that can happen to cause sightings to go up and down. And some people theorize that these things are migratory. I personally think they have a home range similar to a bear where they stay in that home range and they just move around. Like a bear is known to have a, a territory will leave up 50 to 100 miles that they can roam around in. And people, it's just, it's just a matter of luck, people being in the right place at the right time to have that experience or sighting. Um, but we, we still get the flaps that occur in, in certain areas. You'll see a, an upcropping of sightings that go on for a few months or maybe even a year, and then it dies down, probably because the creatures have moved on to you know, a different part of that territory. But... Uh, yeah, it's it's always there's always sightings coming in, and uh, I think as the the popularity of the subject matter it remains high, you're going to always have people reporting them. And I think that the whole taboo on on Bigfoot, as we talked about, um, being a, a such a popular um, pop con a, a a pop star, if you will, yeah. um, a pop icon. Is out there and prevalent. I think people are going to be more comfortable with it and less afraid to come forward and report the sightings. We uh, we're out of time here. Well, let's make sure it's not so many months uh, go by before we have you back on the program. And do promise promise me if you, you know you see any evidence that really you know a video comes into you or whatever it happens to be that you're really impressed by. Let us know because we'd love to talk about it, even if it's for just a quick segment, um, because we like to keep our tabs on that stuff. Um, you know, and have you back on. 
Oh, absolutely. I always enjoy talking with you and, and sharing the latest news and what's going on in the Bigfoot world and the cryptid world. And there's a lot of stuff out there that pops up, um, videos and photographs. Unfortunately, it, a lot of it's inconclusive or you yeah. can't gather much data from it. It's just a blob or you know, something in the shadow. But yeah, if something does come up that it's, it's definitely worth a look, I'll let you know and, and we'll... I'm more than happy to discuss it with you guys. And your website, the best place for people to go if they just want to keep tabs on your work? Uh, it's ericaltman.net. Terrific. Eric, thanks so much for being here. Great to talk to you. Always a pleasure, JV. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by JV Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.